You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now hear the word of the Lord. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the Master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the Master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the Master will put the servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the The servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to be with you guys, uh, both here in the room, and hello to everyone at home. Uh, My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Thanks for being with us. A couple of uh, quick updates. If you came in and you noticed uh, a bunch of baggies in the lobby, little tiny baggies with a little black pill, and maybe that made you nervous. You're wondering what in the world is going on. Um, Well, we've had to get a little creative in figuring out how to do Ash Wednesday this year. Uh, with a pandemic upon us, we didn't think you'd want like people breathing in your face, uh, telling you about how your life will go, you know, with all the implications that might be uh, coming alongside that. Uh, so we have those little black pills in a baggie, which are ash pills. Uh, so you can grab one on your way out. Our Ash Wednesday service is going to be all online. And so that way you can... Um, you can impose ashes on yourself or with your family members, whatever you'd like. And so on your way out where you got your communion cups, that's what those little baggies are for. Um, those are little baggies with an ash pill. You just break it open and you can impose ashes that way. One should be more than enough for a family of up to seven, eight, something like that. And if you're watching at home uh, in the kids' entrance, there'll be a container there where you can come and grab your own individually wrapped package baggie for that too. And then also, y'all may have noticed Justin and Meg Schaefer were on stage, 
And I just want to thank God for that because right after Christmas, they contracted COVID, they contracted the virus. And so they've spent the last six weeks or so recovering and quarantining and doing all of that stuff. And so I'm just thankful for you guys. I'm thankful that the Lord carried you through. And uh, this was their first Sunday back serving. So thanks be to God for that. And uh, thankful, thankful for you guys. Yeah. Um, Can you hear everybody applauding at home? You can hear the streets of New Albany rising up in gratitude that some of our favorite people are still okay. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess with that too, thanks to Ryan Marsh, who carried the lion's share of the load, man. Um, Ryan Marsh is on staff with us part-time. Uh, right now, he and his wife, Tatiana, are waiting on their first baby to come, and so y'all can be praying for them. That's exciting, and uh, Ryan, if you're watching, we thank God for you and your service to your church. Uh, it's kind of, that was an unintentional segue, but it, it's fitting. Um, if you're a parent, which means you have children, uh, can you remember the months before your first child came? It's been kind of fun talking with Ryan and seeing the expectation and all that kind of stuff. But do you remember, can you go back there in your mind for a second and, and remember those weeks and months leading up to when the first baby was coming? Uh, my wife and I were living in a, I like to call it a horse stall in old Louisville and not the cool part of old Louisville, but the, the dangerous, should we really live here part of old Louisville? At least that's what it was, I don't know, 10 years ago. Maybe it's better now. It wasn't actually a horse stall, but it was the kind of apartment where you couldn't play hide and seek in. You get what I mean by that? It's like you could basically touch like wall to wall. We had a bedroom, which was one of our life dreams, which like the whole room, the bed just fit in the whole room. Um, you couldn't get out and walk around the bed. It was a tiny apartment is all I'm, that's all I'm trying to say right now. And uh, I can remember when we found out we were uh, having a baby, you look around and all of a sudden it's like, this just won't do. Um, we're grateful for this place, but you, you look at all the threats. We had floor-to-ceiling windows, and it's like, man, baby's going to crawl right out. You could crawl out onto 3rd and Kentucky. That, that's, not, that's just not going to work. So uh, we bought a house over here uh, shortly after I got a job over here. Uh, then we bought a crib. Uh, then we bought paint swatches and pillows and stuffed animals, and, and we got to work. Uh, if you've had a child, you know that as soon as you know the baby is coming, it changes the way you look at everything. Changes the way you look at your home, changes the way you look at your possessions, changes the way you spend your time. We knew that something wonderful was coming, and so we began preparing for it. Whether it's a child or a new job or, you know, whatever, whenever something significant is coming in life, um, everything changes around us. And at the same time, and this can cause some confusion and tension, uh, life doesn't stop. So while my wife and I were preparing for this baby to come, we both still went to work. It's not like everything shut down and there was only one thing that we focused on. We still ate dinner. We still went on walks together. We still spent time with friends. We still went to church. We held in tension what was coming with what we were responsible for today. Last Sunday, we talked about the most important thing that's coming, the end of the world and the return of Christ. This week, Jesus provides us with some stories, with some pictures of how we prepare for his return. We know that something significant is coming. What does it look like to prepare knowing that he's coming? He shows us a tension between urgency and ordinary, a life of preparation through daily faithfulness. If we have eyes to see it, knowing that the child has come and is coming again will change the way we see everything about our lives. So this morning, we, we're going through a big chunk of text. We're going into about halfway through chapter 25. Um, 
We've got a theological principle that kind of undergirds all of this stuff, Jesus' end times teachings, and then three ways of being, three maybe habits or uh, practices that help us begin to prepare. So the theological principle that I think underlies all of Jesus' teaching about the end times, talked about it last week and we see it again here this week, is what I'm calling sanctified ignorance. Sanctified ignorance is, in essence, a willingness, a posture that says, I don't know, but I trust God. I don't know, but I, I trust God. We, we talked real briefly last week about this area's fascination with end times teachings, with charts, with the rapture, with all of these, you know, know the date and the hour and all of this kind of stuff. And I will just tell you guys, a great hallmark of a false teacher is end times certainty. I believe that with everything in me, if someone has great certainty about the end times, the order of operations, what's happening and when, it's almost always an indication that you're dealing with a false teacher. Jesus puts this plainly for us in verse 36 of 24. However, he says, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. People do crazy stuff with end times. And you can see, this is a good example of sometimes how people can let their obsession uh, impose onto the scriptures or, or allow the scriptures to become twisted and distorted because you'll find people, Bobby and I were, were laughing slash crying about this a week or so ago. People will say, Jesus says you don't know the day or hour, but that doesn't mean you can't know the week or the month. And so they will look for these general time spans and say, oh, it'll be this week and this year and this month. I don't know the specific day, but I know the general time. And, and that's just, for anyone who thinks that that is the essence of what Jesus is saying or is communicating that has totally been distorted. Jesus doesn't know the day and hour of his return, which means neither does a pastor or even an author or someone on Twitter. Right after saying this, Jesus describes the end of the world. He compares it uh, to Noah's day, the seemingly ordinariness of it. People were going about their business. The sin of Noah's day was this nonchalance about God. Matthew 24 and 25, is Jesus is just so unconcerned with the specific timing of his return. He compares it to the nonchalance of Noah's day as a way of reminding us that we need to be about our preparation. In their day, they were consumed by the concerns of everyday life without any thought of a God who was coming and the judgment that he would bring with him. So Jesus' teaching for us is to learn how to live knowing that the end is coming. Not so much an obsession with when is it coming, but how are we going to live as his people knowing that the world is going to end? So we have two realities that we have to set in our minds. One, Jesus is returning. The king is coming again. And the second reality is we don't know when. So how do we hold that together? Sanctified ignorance. Sanctified ignorance. I trust God and I don't know. Christians, we need... Certainty on the central topics of our faith. The Apostles' Creed is a great place to start. If you're wondering, what is the central topics of our faith? Just look at the Apostles' Creed. And so we unite around these things. We need clarity and certainty there at the center. Dates and order of operations for end-time events are not at the center. It might be helpful to think about Christ's return as a due date. It's not a perfect analogy. Have you ever... Don't raise your hand because this will blow up the analogy. I've never known somebody whose child was born right on the due date, where 30 weeks out, the doctor's like, September 8th at 2 p.m., that's when the baby's coming. They're kind of like, oh, give or take around here. 
They give you a general time frame and say that's when the baby is coming. So we know it's the end when Jesus returns, but we don't know precisely when that is going to happen. Nobody starts preparing for the birth of their child on the due date. Amen? Let the mom say amen. You don't start preparing the day that the child is supposed to come home. You get ready way in advance. And so since we do not know the specific date of Christ's return, we begin now. We trust God by preparing now. Sanctified ignorance. Just to reinforce this one more time, right before the ascension in the book of Acts, this is when Jesus ascends into heaven and sits at his throne, the disciples are still asking him about the end times. So if you find yourself very obsessed and interested in the end times, it's pretty normal. So were the disciples. So they ask him again, when will you return? When will you set up your earthly kingdom? And this is what Jesus says, Acts chapter one, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. They are not for you to know. So, the theological principle that has to undergird all of our end times thinking and behaving is sanctified ignorance. We trust God. We believe what he says is true. And we're not entirely sure when this is going to happen. That's the theological principle. So what are the ways of being to inhabit this? Well, Jesus will tell three rapid-fire stories here that all have to do with some degree of preparation. How do we get ready for the end times? The first way of being, I think, he's teaching us is to prioritize local faithfulness. Local faithfulness. So he, he tells a story in verses 45 to 51 of chapter 24 about a faithful and thoughtful servant. A faithful and thoughtful servant. It starts with a question, and in essence, it's an invitation to be this kind of servant. You want to know what a good servant looks like? This is what it looks like. Verses 45 and 46 says, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. So here this faithful servant, his faithfulness towards God, towards his master, shows up in his faithfulness to the responsibilities the master has given him. Notice that the master doesn't celebrate his global reach or what he's doing in the town over. He says, these were the things you were responsible for in this household, and you've done a good job with this household. We prepare for Christ's return by prioritizing that kind of local faithfulness responsibility towards the things that are right in front of us that God has entrusted to us. Have you ever, have, well, let me think about how I want to say this. How many of us get swept up in national or global affairs when our own home is a mess? Have you ever done that? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed someone who has very strong opinions on the International Monetary Fund or the World Health Organization, but their own personal finances are a mess or their own personal health? is a mess? How many of us know the ills of our, of our nation better than the ills of our neighborhoods? How many of us could name what is wrong in our country better than we could name what's wrong on our street? Again, if you're a parent, how many of us know more about a political candidate or a professional athlete or a celebrity? How many of us know more about those strangers than we do about our children's hearts, about the true longings, the true desires, the true fears that they have? The first and most practical way 
to keep alert and watch for the any moment return of Christ is to be faithful in the local responsibilities God has given to you. And if you're, if you're kind of curious, what does local mean? Think about the people you live with. Who do you live with? Maybe you're married to one of them. Maybe you're a parent to one of them. Maybe it's just a roommate. What does it look like for you to be faithful with the things God has entrusted to you right in front of you? Jesus will say in this story, you heard it read for us, an evil servant says the master won't be back for a while and uses that as an excuse to abuse his responsibilities. Thinking that the return of the master is so far off, what does that do? It allows him to abuse and distort his local responsibilities. Instead of being good and faithful with what's right in front of him, he uses it to his advantage and he hurts people. A lack of faithfulness to others, taking responsibility for what is before us, refusing to take responsibility for what is before us, reveals a lack of faithfulness to God himself and leaves us unprepared for his return. There's all kinds of practical implications of this. Maybe your mind is spinning. There's real simple things like showing up to work on time, like taking care of your house, being known as the best employee at your organization. There's all kinds of relational implications of this too. Think about what it might mean during this winter of our isolation and disconnect. I've yet to meet, if you're feeling disconnected right now, this isn't in the notes, it's just, you know, here we are talking. Um, I just want you to know, I have not met a Christian in any church in anywhere in the United States that isn't struggling with feeling disconnected right now. Everybody feels disconnected. Everybody feels isolated. So what would it mean to prioritize a faithful presence with people? Maybe if there's folks that you're living with, I just wonder what would happen if we, if we just covenanted together to never look at our phones when we were in the presence of another human being. What might happen there? What might happen for those that you can't be, you can't be physically present with right now if we said, you know what, I'm going to commit to show up relationally for one of my friends once a week. Whether that means dropping a meal off. Could you afford a $10 gift card? Could, could you give him a phone call? Could you write him a letter? What would it look like for us to show up relationally, even if that doesn't mean showing up physically? We must embrace a greater sense of urgency that any moment return of Christ is upon us. How do we do that? prioritize local faithfulness. Serve Jesus by serving the people around you. Prioritize local faithfulness. He goes to a next, another story right after this, which speaks to the second way of being, which I, I would say is practicing long-haul discipleship. So again, in the previous story, the evil person was the one who thought the master was a long way off. And... Um, his lack of urgency is implicitly condemned here. Believing that the master wasn't coming back for a long time led the servant to abandon his faithfulness. And Jesus critiques his lack of certainty. But then in the next story, Jesus critiques an exaggerated sense of urgency. So there's 10 bridesmaids. And it's, this, it's not really a convoluted story. There's just some historical context that is helpful that we're not going to get into. He, he, in essence, Jesus tells the story about 10 bridesmaids that are waiting for the groom to come so the wedding can get started. And they're supposed to be sitting there waiting and prepared. They've got oil and lamps. They're supposed to light the lamps when the 
the groom comes. Hear the critique. Chapter 25, verse 3. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. So here's what's going on. Five of them have enough oil to last through the whole night so that whenever the bridegroom comes, they will be ready. Five of them didn't have enough oil to get through the night. These five, the foolish, were expecting the groom to come right now. He'll be here any second. And so they didn't come prepared for a long night. And yet a long night is what they received. A long time of waiting. So what do the five foolish do? They say, hey, can we have some of your oil? And the other five are like, no, man, this is our oil. We came prepared. You're going to have to go buy some. So they go run out into town to go buy more olive oil. And who shows up while they're out? The groom shows up and they're not prepared. He brings the five wise to the wedding and the five foolish are knocking on the door, but the party's already started and they can't come in. They missed the return of the groom and they were locked out of the wedding. The Christian life is rarely a simple matter of conversion. It's not a single moment of spiritual ecstasy or a one-time acknowledgement of truth. These ladies knew that a wedding was coming. They knew the groom was coming, but they were not prepared. They did not prepare for a long night, and so they faced the consequences. So for us, we have to avoid the temptation of resting on a confession of faith and then simply waiting. We have to avoid the temptation to put off regular faithfulness through an exaggerated sense of urgency. If Jesus is coming back in five minutes, I'm not finishing the sermon. You see what I mean? If we have an exaggerated sense of Jesus is going to come back this instant, the regular rhythms of ordinary faithful Christianity get pushed to the side, and those are the very ways we prepare for the return of Christ. We have to avoid the temptation of seeing Christianity as the pursuit of summer camp highs. Anybody else become a Christian at summer camp? One other person in the room. Come on. Come on, Cameron. I see that hand, brother. Yeah, I became a Christian at a summer camp. And if you've never heard the phrase on fire for Christianity or on fire for Jesus, that began at summer camp. Because right after you got off the blob or the world's longest zip line or you ate a 300-foot-long Sunday with 400 of your friends and then you became a Christian, you felt like Samson bringing down the pillars of the temple or something. You felt like you could take on the world and six months, 12 months, 18 months later, you kind of went back to feeling normal. And I spent the next 10 years chasing that high again. We have to avoid the temptation of seeing Christianity as only a dramatic conversion story. It might be that at times, but we cannot allow that to be the goal or the normal expectation Christian discipleship, please hear me now, is a, a life of patient listening to the Word of God, a life of repentance when that Word exposes our sinful ways, a lifelong pursuit of preparing for the return of Christ. And we need to get in our minds that it could be a long night. The warning for us is to be wary of the temptation to spiritual highs or showy, panicky Christianity. There is an urgency, yes, because we know the king is returning and we don't know when. But that urgency needs to be tempered by a sobriety that the master could still be a long way off. A good friend of mine calls this tension contemplative urgency. Diligently pursuing obedience to Christ, 
from a posture of confidence and peace. He will return, so what will I do now? I will pursue holiness. I will point those around me to Jesus. I will take responsibility for my job, my work, my family, my body, my soul. Contemplative urgency is when we so long for the return of Christ. We're so passionate about his nearness and his kingdom that we get to work in the ordinary rhythms of a healthy human life that obeys Jesus. Practice long-haul discipleship. And the third way of being helps us understand more of what this looks like. Put to work what God has given you. This is what theologians often call spiritual formation. Taking what the Lord has given to you and making the most of it. Here at Sojourn New Albany, we define spiritual formation this way. The lifelong pursuit of becoming your true self in Christ. Through the power of Christ, you make the most of what God has given you to become fully alive who God intended you to be. Much of that definition was driven, was um, drawn rather, from the parable of the ten talents, which Jesus teaches here in Matthew 25. A talent was a unit of money. It was a lot of money. And the story goes that there was a wealthy guy who was leaving town. So he gave each of his servants a certain amount of money, a certain number of talents. When he came back, he asks what they've done with what he gave them. And if you go back and read the story, all of this stuff, you can, maybe it might be helpful for you to go read Matthew 24 and 25 and, and listen through the sermon again. Jesus never says, what did you do with what I gave to him? What did you do with what I gave to her? He comes back and says, I gave this to you. What did you do with what I gave you? Some did nothing with what they were given. Some put the money to work and made even more. Here's the lesson that the master gives. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. So this parable begs each of us to ask the question, what will I do with what God has given me? What will I do with what God has given me? Not what should she do with what God has given her, Not what should he do with what God has given him. What should I do with what God has given me? To wish for another's gift is a denial of the goodness and wisdom of God. Do you see that? To wish you were or had what someone else had is a denial of the wisdom and goodness of God. To wish for another's life is a denial of the wisdom and goodness of God. And what's more, you will not be asked about any of that upon Christ's return. When he comes back, he will say to you, what have you done with what I gave to you? So we have to understand what he's given to us and pursue faithfulness there. Who are you? Where are you? What has he given to you? Who has he given you responsibility over and for? We prepare for the return of Christ by entering into a lifelong pursuit of putting to work all that God has given us. Pursuing Christ sets us free from the fear, shame, and guilt that drives us to compare, that makes us wish we had the gifts of another. None of that is free. None of that is a person who is free. But instead, Jesus shows us we're loved, that we're safe, that we can look at what we have, look at where we are, and say, how can I put this to work for Christ's kingdom? So when it comes to the end of the world, 
We are called to live the good life here and now, the life of following Jesus, of serving Jesus, and preparing for the return of Jesus. And yes, most often this will look normal. But this is, oh boy, I hope this makes sense. If, if it all looks normal, and yet it's the way that we prepare for the return of Christ, this means that normal is always filled with divine significance. Every moment is pregnant with holy wonder because this could be the moment where Christ returns. Nothing is meaningless anymore. Every ordinary act of faithfulness, putting our gifts to work for God's kingdom, pursuing our own Christ-likeness in the good of our neighbor, every ordinary act of faithfulness becomes an act of anticipating the return of Christ. Living that good life with God in the midst of everyday real life always trumps date setting and seeking of signs in the kingdom of God because that is what Jesus emphasizes here throughout his sermon on the end of the world. So we know a baby is coming because we know a baby has come. Amen? We just don't know when he's coming again. So from a posture of ignorance, we look right here first. How can we serve Christ in our home? How can I care for those that God has entrusted to me? How can I serve Christ in my neighborhood, in my local church, in my own city? How can I do this in a way that honors my humanity and the commands of Christ so that I may serve him should he not return for my lifetime? How can I make the most of the gifts God has given to me? Prioritize local faithfulness. Practice long-haul discipleship and put to work what God has given to you. This makes communion such a wonder to me because we're called to remember the most significant thing that's ever happened in such ordinary, simple ways. We call our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it, even bread, blessed it, broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. So what are we remembering? That in Christ's first coming, he has set us free from Satan's sin and death. He took responsibility for his creation, for his children, and he took responsibility for our sins by being nailed to a cross. And then we remember he was raised, and now we are safe with God. Next week, we're going to talk about one final component about Jesus' end-time teaching, and that is the word judgment. I want you to feel the urgency of the ordinary taught in this passage. Jesus will return when all feels normal, which means it could be right now and it could be today. Begin your preparation for Christ's return by joining us in our sacred confession that Jesus is Lord. Come to him and follow him receive forgiveness of your sins, receive his empowering spirit, and join us in preparing for his glorious return. Or as we sang earlier, bow down while your knees still bend. There will come a time, and this is next week, where your decision will be taken from you because you spent a lifetime of putting off the decision. Jesus could come back any moment, so let us not be a people like the evil servant who wait and wait and wait, and then one day find our knees will no longer bend. 
So I invite you now to open up your cup or take what you have at home. Take the wafer and remember the body of Christ was given for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. Take the juice and remember what seals your place in the family of God and seals your relationship with God. It is the blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.